My name is Joe Valenti. I'm the youth pastor here. I serve with our 6th through 12th graders, and uh, it's an honor for me to be here this morning to bring God's Word to you. Um, I brought a printed copy of my notes because my iPad glitched last service, and I thought we were going to crash and burn real fast. Uh, thankfully, they came back on. But um, every Monday morning, I get together with Lauren, my female uh, counterpart in the student ministry area, and we and we uh, plan for our week, and we so we go through our agenda and and. After each agenda heading, communication, events, students, strategy, we, we pray over that heading. And the first item on our agenda every week is care. Who in CVC Youth, our leaders, our students, our families, who needs care this week? Who needs our attention? Um, and it can be very, very difficult because there's a lot of needs. Um, and, but as we started listing the names this week of all, specifically of our youth leaders, our volunteers that that lead our, our youth as we listed, the list became long and overwhelming. And I found myself beginning to question God a little bit, thinking things like this, Lord, you see these leaders and the time they invest every week, the money that they have spent. Some of them have spent thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on food in their homes and gas to go to events. They've taken vacation time. Uh, and, and, and instead of going away to a beach somewhere, they come to summer camp with a bunch of two, with, with, with 200 screaming teenagers. Lord, these people of, of all people, why do they have to walk through the things that they're walking through? There's been a young lady who just had a recent surgery on her knee who's hobbling in to do ministry every week. There's been issues in, in, in marriages, folks who can't find jobs, folks who have lost jobs. We just found out that another one of our CVC youth leaders have cancer, and on down the list it goes, and I find myself going, God, they don't deserve these things that they're walking through. And honestly, like, I look around at the world if I put, t take my gaze out of my own little personal life and my own you know, circles of influence, I look around at the world and I see posts on Facebook, I see things that happen in our communities, and I start to wonder, I start to think things like, God, are you really in control? Do you really love us? If you are, why are things the way that they are? And as a pastor, it's my, I sort of feel like it's my job not to think that way. Right, like, you, no, you're supposed to be the one who's grounded. You're supposed to be the one who doesn't doubt. You're supposed to be the one who guides us back when we get off track. And, and so sometimes I start to feel guilty. I feel like maybe I'm the only one who feels that way. But as we look to God's word, I think I and you, if you have ever experienced doubt in the middle of your pain or circumstances, that we're in good company. Because the disciples doubted all the time. In fact, Jesus on many occasions re refers to them as you of little faith. And even John the Baptist, if you don't know who John the Baptist was, Jesus actually says there's nobody on earth like John the Baptist. He had dedicated his life to God. He had dedicated his life to being the forerunner or the uh, introducer of Jesus. And even John begins to doubt, as we will see in our text today. Even John starts to go, Jesus, are you really who you say you are? So if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 7, as we're continuing our uh, multi-year study through the gospel of Luke. 
We're in a series called Search and Rescue uh, for the next period of time. We're going to be in Luke 7, starting in verse 18. And as you turn there, I want to give you sort of the cultural context or the climate surrounding first century AD in Judea. Uh, what, what is happening at this place in time amongst these people? So I want you to, I'm going to give you a visual, like my cup and on, on up this aisle, this is like the first century AD, okay? This is the, the time on the timeline when Jesus lived, okay? A- a- after this, we will see, you know, the life of Paul and the apostles and Peter, and then on into the future, okay? Behind this, we have largely the Old Testament, right? We have, we, we go into the BC years. And if you look back in the history of the Jewish people, what you will see is that they spent the majority of their time as a people under tyrant leadership, being enslaved to other world powers. You may know the story of them being enslaved in Egypt. They actually, for a little bit of time, they're under their own rule. If you read First and Second Kings, the majority of their kings are fools and lead them poorly and don't Uh, encourage them to listen and honor God with their life. What happens um, uh, around 600, around 600, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians, attacks Jerusalem. They go into captivity again in Babylon. Then they're under the rule of the Persians and the Greeks and the Seleucids, the Syrians. Um, And then they're they're under the rule of themselves for a little while before the Romans take over. Pompey marches through uh, the Near East and they end up under the rule of the Romans. And so through that whole time, God had been speaking to the Jewish people through prophets. And he had been telling them, he had been comforting them by telling them, there's a rescuer who's going to come. My anointed one, my Messiah. Maybe you've heard that word before. All the prophets point to this Messiah who would come and he would rescue the people of Israel and change things. And so Jesus comes on the scene in the first century and John the Baptist's role is to proclaim and preach that the kingdom of God has now come. Jesus, the Messiah, is here. But Jesus doesn't meet John's expectations of what the Messiah is supposed to be like. Jesus doesn't meet the Jewish people's expectations, and so the doubt creeps in. So that's where we're at. That's the political climate. That's the tension that we find ourselves in in today's text. Look with me, Luke 7, starting in verse 18. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So what's the situation? The reason that John has to send people uh, to Jesus is because John is in prison. John has been jailed because uh, he's 
kind of a big mouth. Um, John is known, as you look at his life, he is a hellfire and brimstone, preach it like it is, don't miss any words kind of guy. Okay, I like him. That's the kind of guy that John is. And John cannot hold his tongue when he gets an audience with Herod, the ruler of that area. And Herod is in kind of an incestuous relationship where he has married his brother's wife. It's a big mess. John calls him out on it in front of everybody, and John gets thrown in prison. So John is in jail. And he sends out his messengers, and they're seeing what Jesus has done. And in verse 18, it says, they report all these things back to John. What are all these things? What have they reported back to John? Well, what's happened earlier in chapter 7? Earlier in chapter 7, we see the story that Pastor Chad preached a couple weeks ago. The centurion's servant um, is healed. And then there's a story about a boy in a town called Nain who is raised from the dead. So they report these miracles back to John. Go to prison. Hey, John, here's what's going on. Now, what does John say? Does he say, great, this is awesome. Keep coming back and telling me more of the stories. No, he doesn't say that. John asks a really perplexing question. He says, go back to Jesus and ask him this question. Are you the one to come or should we look for another? And what John is asking is, are you the Messiah? Are you the one that God has sent Are you the one that we've been waiting for or should we look for somebody else? And it's a really weird question because as I mentioned, and as you read through the beginning of Luke, the beginning of the gospel of John, the beginning of uh, Mark, um, you'll see John the Baptist had dedicated his entire life to proclaiming to the Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah. He preaches that way, he teaches that way, he baptizes Jesus, he hears the voice of the Father when he's baptized saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. It has been clear as day to John that Jesus is the Messiah, and yet he asks this question. And when you read it, I came across it several weeks ago in my personal quiet time, I'm working through John, and I was, that is a weird question for John to ask why does he ask it? Why is John asking this question? And my, what I would propose to you is that there are two reasons that John is asking this question. The first reason that John is asking this question is because of his personal pain. His personal pain, the situation that he finds himself in. Right? He's dedicated his life to following God, to studying the scriptures. He, he actually took a vow. It was called the Nazarite vow. That basically he was saying, I am 100% dedicating myself to God. There were strict rules on what he ate. He was never married. He was dedicated to God. John was a believer. And yet this doubt creeps in because as he considers the fact that he's in prison, he's wondering, what is going on? How, how is it that my role has been to introduce the Messiah and I find myself so quickly in prison? I wonder if you ever feel like that. I feel like that. When life hits, when pain comes, when struggles hit my family, when my mother is one of the most godly people that I know. 
And two years ago, we found out that my mom had cancer. And when things like that happen, I'll be honest with you. I go, Lord, my mom of all people does not deserve this. I threw a little tantrum this week and I'm not proud of the way that I acted, but I was at my desk and I recently had gotten information that one of our youth leaders, uh, 20, 20 years old, came through our youth ministry, the transitioned right into volunteering with our middle school students, found out that she has cancer. And I got an email this week that says it, it, it's probably worse than we think it is. And I got up out of my desk and I walked into the hallway and Lauren was in her desk just, you know, working. And I go, this is so stupid. And she was like, that was mad. I'm like, I hate this. And I wonder, 20 years old, God, 20 years old, and she's on the right track. You know how many 20-year-olds I've seen that are so far off the rails? Why her? And my bet is you feel like that sometimes, too. I believe the Bible. I know the places that I'm supposed to go to. but it doesn't always quench my doubt. Maybe you've been trying to use your influence in your office or at your organization to share the good news of Jesus with people and you walk in one day and you don't have a job anymore. And you go, what is going on? Or maybe you, um, you're really excited uh, about this new marriage, and you did everything right. You saved yourself for marriage, and, and, and you went through the CVC premarital counseling and, you know, did, did, did all the right stuff with Pastor Chad, and, you, you know, you, you, you got married right here, and now, a year or two later, you can't even recognize that other person, and there's so much strife in your marriage, and you go, God, we did it right. Or, you're really excited to have kids and, and, and you want to raise them to know Jesus and you can't wait to start reading them the little baby Bible and you've been pr praying for that and you, and you look forward to doing devotions at the dinner table and discipling them to know Jesus and you just run up the, against the wall of infertility. And all these unbelievers around you are having babies and you're going, what is going on? Or you finally get pregnant. And the joy that fills that house is unbelievable until the day when the heartbeat in your belly stops way before you had hoped it would. When you have to watch your mom or your dad begin to lose their physical and mental abilities. When you're the victim of crime or abuse, when you get the call about the car accident or the aneurysm or the heart attack, you wonder just like John, Jesus, are you the one? Or should I be looking for someone else that's gonna come and do things the way that I think they should be done? Do you love me? 
Are you who you say you are? Are you paying attention up there? We understand John's question. I do. Jesus, are you who you say you are? Because it doesn't feel like it to me right now. John is battling with personal pain. His situation has caused him to doubt who Jesus is. But I think more than that, I think it's not only John's personal pain, I think it's the public pain that he perceives around him. Again, as I had mentioned, the, the Jewish people were still under a tyrant regime, under the rule of the Romans. And one of the most important pieces of the messianic prophecies from the Old Testament was that when the Messiah came, that he would usher in the kingdom of God, that he would bring judgment on God's enemies, that the political landscape would significantly change. And so not only is John in prison, but he looks outside of the walls of that prison and he's wondering, God, are you in control? When, when does the change happen? Not a, like they, they had been under the rule of the Babylonians and under the Persians, but in, in the gap where we don't have any scripture, in the 400 years, it's about right here before Jesus, there's a Greek ruler who had come on the scene and they had just rebuilt the temple and this Greek ruler dedicates the temple to Zeus. The Romans are fiercely cruel and they're waiting for this Messiah to change things. John, in one of his first sermons, uses this illustration. He says, when the Messiah comes, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. That's what John's looking forward to. John is ready for God to rescue his people and to burn his enemies. And yet, and so Jesus comes on the scene, born in Bethlehem in a barn and, 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 and changing water into wine at, at, at weddings and wandering around in these backwoods towns in Judea. Like, when do we march on Rome? When do things change? When are you going to actually prove that you are who you say you are? Because here I am in jail and Rome is still in charge and your people are still suffering. When's the wrath part come? We, should we be looking for someone else to bring out God's justice? And again, I relate. I look around at the world, and I know you've said it too. What is this world coming to? It is a hot mess. Our country, divided, racially, economically, politically, socially. Look around the world, 20,000 people in the Philippines are, are displaced because of a, of a volcano. Several teachers and four Kenyan primary school students were killed Monday by a terrorist attack. Christians all over the world are hiding in fear of their lives. 
Believers in Egypt had their homes burned on New Year's Eve a few days ago. Uh, Boko Haram raided a village in Nigeria this week, killing seven and kidnapping a little girl. Chinese pastor Wang Yi uh, was recently sentenced to nine years in jail for subverting state power. And honestly, the way that I feel as a Christian is that if I stand up for uh, uh, for things that are moral and ethical and biblical, that I'm the foolish one in the crowd. I'm the idiot. I'm the one who doesn't get it. And I just look around and I feel sometimes like John feels. Are you paying attention up there? Because it doesn't look like you're in charge of anything down here. Are you the Messiah with the winnowing fork that will burn up the enemies? Where's the Messiah that will bring justice for the oppressed and the minimalized and the marginalized? Because it doesn't seem like they're getting justice from where I sit. If John could just see some change. Maybe he wouldn't doubt like he does, but he doesn't see that change. He's wondering if there's somebody else and his doubt rises up in him. And it does with you and I too. We look at our world, the news, our Facebook feed, and we go, I don't know sometimes, Lord, if you really are in charge. Should we be looking for someone else? So what do we do? That's reality, right? That's reality. That's how we feel. That's how we live in our personal pain and in our public pain. John gives us a good example of what to do. John goes to Jesus with his doubt. He goes right to Jesus with his doubt. And Jesus doesn't brush him off. He doesn't send a snarky comment back to John. He doesn't rebuke John for his lack of faith. Jesus is so patient with us. Jesus is so patient with his disciples and he's patient with John. He's gentle with John and what he does with John is he points him back to the scriptures that prove to John that he is who he says he is. He doesn't go, duh, right? He says, look at the scriptures. I'm gonna prove to you that I am who I say that I am and that's exactly what he does for us. Continue reading with me in verse 21. In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, go tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. So, Jesus continues to do the miracles that he had been doing. And he says, hey, just go tell John what you're seeing me do. Which is an okay answer, aside from the fact that John already knows all of that. The first verse of this text, look back to verse 18. The disciples went and reported all that had happened. 
So they went back and reported that the centurion's servant had been healed, that the boy in Nain had been raised to life. John already knows. So I can imagine that he might receive this answer and go, yeah, I know that. Or that we might read it and go, why, why would Jesus answer this way? It doesn't seem to change the scenario. But what's happening here, there's another layer to Jesus' answer. Jesus is actually pointing John to Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. He's not just doing random miracles and giving John random answers. He is pointing John specifically to texts in the Old Testament that tell him what the Messiah would do, knowing that John was a student of the Bible. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. See, there's a connect there between what Jesus is doing and saying and what Old Testament prophecy said the Messiah would be like. Isaiah 29, 18, In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 26, 19, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. See, at every step, Jesus is pointing John to texts that prove, yeah, this is what the Messiah would do and it's what I'm doing. Which again, Pretty good answer. But just like us, John wonders, okay, but I'm still in jail. And John knows the scriptures, and he knows that Jesus has left out some very specific parts of these texts. I can imagine John receiving the message back from his disciples, thinking, rolling through these texts in his mind and thinking, Jesus, I know Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 and what it says about the blind and the deaf and the mute being healed, but you skipped over verse 4. Why, why, why didn't you say verse 4? Be strong, fear not, behold your Lord, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Why, why didn't you quote that one, Jesus? I know Isaiah 29, 18 and what it says about the Messiah healing the deaf and the blind, but let's keep reading. Get on down to verse 20 where it says, the ruthless shall come to nothing and the scoffer cease and all who watch to do evil will be cut off. Why didn't you, you talk about that at all? I've dedicated my life to you, Jesus. I know what Isaiah 26, 19 says about the dead being raised, but let's not pull up short. Keep reading down to verse 21 that says, the Lord is coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And, and since you brought up Isaiah 61, let's just read all of verse one instead of just the first part. I've been anointed to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prisons to those who are bound. You, you imagine Jesus quoting or pointing John to Isaiah 61, and in John's brain, he goes, what about the release from prison part? (laughs) 
But I think that's the way that we think too. We go, don't give me a Bible verse, fix my pain. Right? If we had to choose, give me a Bible verse that comforts me and tells me who God really is, or take the pain away, which one would we choose? We choose take the pain away. And John's wondering, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. But here I am, still in prison. And so Jesus, knowing all things, knowing how you would feel and how I would feel and how John feels, ends his response. Verse 23, he says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's a weird translation, the way that it translates to English, but um, maybe a better way to understand that phrase is, blessed are you if your faith does not fail, even when I don't do what you thought I was going to do. Or blessed are you when I call you to have faith in who I am and I don't take the pain away. Blessed are you when you trust my heart when you can't trace my hand. Saying to John, I know that this is not what you expected. I know that my rule and reign looks different than you might have had the picture painted in your mind, but John, Get me here, John. I, I, I didn't just come to open the eyes of the physically blind and to unblock the ears of the physically ear, what I, of, the, of the physically deaf. What I came to do is to open the eyes of the sinner, of my enemy, that they might see their sin and a need for a savior and come to me by faith. I, gave, I, I came to give people ears to hear so that they might hear the good news of the gospel, the good news that there's a God who loves them and has an opportunity has an opportunity for their relationship to be restored. John, my rule and reign, my kingdom is not gonna, it's not gonna come the way that maybe you thought it was gonna come immediately and swiftly. I'm not gonna march into Jerusalem, John, with an army and, and, and overthrow Herod or overthrow Rome and set up an earthly kingdom, John. I'm, I'm talking about a different kind of kingdom. I'm talking about a kingdom that is not of this world. And instead of going and sitting on a throne, John, what I'm gonna do is go and die on a cross in order that I might bring my enemies into my family. It's gonna look a whole lot different than you thought it might have been, John, and blessed are you if your faith does not waver when I don't do things the way that you wanted me to do them. Wow. So how do we respond to this? How do you and I make application to our own lives, to our doubt and our public pain and our private pain First, I'll look at our public pain. How do we respond? 
as we consider the state of our world and our country as things go through our brains, like what is this world coming to? See, I think what happens a lot of times is that we don't prefer Jesus' timeline. We don't like the fact that our world seems to be overcome with evil. We don't like the fact that righteousness seems to be l- losing right now. We, we look at the news and we don't like that it looks like God isn't paying attention. But let me tell you, let me tell you what, what is g- going on behind the scenes. See, we have the whole story. And so we know that Revelation, like way over here, right on the timeline, tells us that there will be a point when Jesus will return He will return again with the armies of heaven arrayed behind him and he will bring justice and he will bring vengeance and the enemies of God uh, will be destroyed once and for all. But he's given us this gap. He's given us this gap between his first coming and his second coming and he's launched us into a search and rescue mission to go and seek and save the lost. And things, I'll tell you what, things are gonna keep getting worse because the Bible says that that's how things are gonna pan out. So just get used to it. Okay, just get used to our country is going to just keep going the way of evil. The world is going to keep going the way of evil. And Jesus has called us to something different. He's called us to have the long view. He's called us to be missionaries, to be evangelists, to be church planters, to proclaim a new type of kingdom. But instead, here's what we do. We don't like the timeline, so we misplace our faith into a politician who we hope will change things to be like we want them to be right now. And Jesus never exemplified that course of action. Instead of bringing political reform and eliminating public pain through force, he charts a different way of a different kingdom, dying that his enemies might live. And so when you're struggling with public pain, when you look around at our country and the world and you wonder, God, are you really in control? What's what's going on? You can go to his word and I'll tell you what, he will tell you exactly what's going on. And he'll tell you things like he says in Luke 9, if you're going to come after me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. If you lose your life, you will save it. But if you try to take your life or save your life, you will lose it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? You tell me what politician is going to give you that message. It's not coming from Washington. Luke 10, he might draw you to Luke 10 that talks about the fact that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. What is Jesus calling you to do? Calling you to be a laborer in the harvest, not a warrior in some sort of political army. I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. That's how it's gonna be. Or when Jesus comes to Pilate in John 18 and Pilate says, hey, you you think you're a king? And Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would be fighting, but they're not. He paints a completely different picture for us. Is it wrong, friends, to be engaged in politics? No, it's not wrong. I'll, I'll be honest with you. Like, 
I love this country. My dad fought for this country. We have uh, young men and women from CVC Youth that are all over the world that are in the military. I, I, I love living in the United States. I'm a proud American. But I'll tell you what, my number one allegiance is not to the United States. And neither, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, neither is yours. Donald Trump is not a savior. And Barack Obama was not a savior. And whoever is elected in 2020 will not be your savior either. And so, I would challenge you, where do your faith and allegiance lie? How does your time, how does your time spent on politics and the kingdom of God compare? The world has never been out of God's control. And he has a perfect plan and he's doing it his way and in his time. And the marching orders that he has for his people right now in this in-between is you're on a search and rescue mission to seek and to save the lost. True religion, James says, is that you would visit the widow and care for the orphan. Until the moment of Christ returns and the prophecies of the Messiah are fully and finally fulfilled, we are on a mission to proclaim the love, mercy, and salvation of a crucified king who died to save his enemies. And blessed are you if you are not offended by me. So what about our private pain? What do we do with that? I would say we do the same thing. We bring our private pain to Jesus. We bring our pain to Jesus and he'll point us to the scriptures. He'll always point us to the scriptures as a constant reminder of who he is, that he is who he says that he is, and that our hope, listen to me, our hope is not in the in-between. Your hope ultimately is not in your pain going away in this life. Your hope is that your Messiah will return and in eternity, every tear will be wiped away from your eyes. Shortly after this exchange, John is in his prison cell and the latch clicks. Freedom! No, that's not what happens to John. Upstairs, in the palace, there's a party going on, a rather perverse scene. A little adolescent girl does a, a dance for the king. And the king gets all excited about it. And he says to her, I'll give you anything you want, my whole kingdom. She doesn't know. So she goes and asks, asks her mom. And mom says, I want John the Baptist's head. 
And so when the latch clicks, Jesus hasn't secured John's freedom. John is led upstairs and his legs are kicked out from under him and his head is put on a block. And I just wonder, as the Roman sword took his head and his life, if those words were ringing through his head, blessed are you, John, if you're not offended by me. Because here's the thing, folks. My message today, the message of Jesus and the message of Christianity is never all your pain's going to go away. That's not it. Anybody who tells you that is selling you something. That's not the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is this. I gave my life to purchase for you healing and restoration and freedom that far outweighs any healing, restoration, or freedom that you might experience in this life. I've got the long view in mind. And he might take you to the scriptures and show you in James 1 that we can have joy Consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because I'm producing in you steadfastness. Steadfastness for hope until the end. I'm not not mainly worried about fixing it now. I'm worried about you getting to the end. I'm producing in you, increasing your faith so it doesn't crumble when the doubts come into your life. He, He might point you to 2 Corinthians 4 that says, so we do not lose hope. Through our Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For what is external is transient. What is internal is eternal. He might point you to the 23rd Psalm. It says, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Jesus would say to you today in your personal pain, I am enough for you. I will hold you. I will keep you secure. I have the power to make sure that your faith doesn't crumble. Come to me. I'm gentle and lowly in spirit. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So friends, when you get the phone call, when you get the doctor's report, when you get the pink slip, whatever it may be, Jesus has proven himself again and again that he is capable. And he may not fix your pain now, but he has purchased your healing and freedom for eternity. Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the older things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne 
Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will say, behold, I'm making all things new. Write that down. Because that is trustworthy and true. Blessed are you if you are not offended by me. If your faith doesn't fail, when I don't do things that you thought I was going to do in the way that you thought I was going to do them. Let's pray. Lord, our hope is in you and you alone. You are all that we have. And so we throw our lives on you. We cast every anxiety on you, every fear on you, every doubt on you because you care for us. And we, with all of our hearts, trust that your shoulders are strong enough and your hands are strong enough to hold us fast. All that my Father has given me are mine. I give them eternal life and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The Father who has given them to me is more powerful than all and no one will snatch them out of his hand. Hallelujah and amen.